Justice Tech Pros here. Before we dive into today's uh, episode, I just wanted to thank uh, Ruckus Radio Podcast and its member um, Shattered. Specifically, he gave me a uh, tip about adding a playlist to the uh, podcast channel. And I, and I implemented that, so I appreciate the uh, heads up on that. And also to Rich at Ruckus Radio for always, you know, supporting this platform and what I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast. I appreciate it. Today I wanted to dive into the topic of accountability and more specifically how uh, prosecutors are, are really not held accountable for when they have prosecutorial misconduct or they do things unethically during a trial and innocent people are then sent to prison because of their efforts to influence things in a negative way and a um, shady way and a way that's just not representative of somebody who's a member of a bar association or somebody who's in such a position of power. And there should be accountability for that. And it's Something that I just couldn't, you know, understand as I was going through um, this last trial. And just in general, when you see things happening that you know are not right, and you see lies happening, and you see witnesses being used that you know that the government knows that they're lying, but yet they use them anyway, and there's really no price to pay for that. There's really no risk involved. They could do all these tactics, implement all these moves, and if it goes south... There's no repercussions for it. And if it goes positive for them, they get a conviction based on doing things in a manner that should not be allowed. And if it is done in ways that are not up to the standard of of the law or of the justice system, there's there's no price to pay, so to speak, if um, these things come to light. And I was researching it a bit, and I noticed that obviously I'm not the only one who sees that as a problem. I mean, there's countless articles, and there's actually petitions going out. And uh, I started diving in a little. And one one that um, I'm going to go over a few that had some good information in it. And I'll paraphrase, not to bore everybody from just reading, but I'll read certain sections that I think are directly related. But one article I liked that appealed to me it was it was titled why don't prosecutors get disciplined and it was written by Parker Yesko Y E S K O and this was November 18th 2018 and there's a few um there's a few things on how it almost evolved you know back in 1935 there was a ruling in Berger versus the United States where the Supreme Court broadly defined how a prosecutor should behave. And it says uh, prosecutors enforce the law, but they're not above it, or at least they're not supposed to be. And, you know, that's the, what it's supposed to be and what happens are two different, two different elements. And the article goes on to say he may prosecute with earnestness and vigor. Indeed, he should do so. But while he may strike hard blows, he is not at liberty to strike foul ones. It is as much his duty to refrain from improper methods calculated to produce a wrongful conviction as it is to use every legitimate means to bring about a just one. And, you know, that's that's really the way it should go. You know, if you have you have the evidence, 
you have the supporting documentation or supporting testimony to back it up, try it, you know, and try it with, um, with passion and try it with intelligence, but try it properly. Don't do anything that's unjust to get that conviction just because you want to win. If the evidence is there, the evidence is there. If it's not there and you're forcing it, well, that may be the issue right there alone. You know, if you're trying to, you know, pull things from thin air to make them work, that's where character comes into place. That may be a position where the prosecutor has to look look at everything and say, well, this case really isn't here. Even though it was presented to me, there's really not a guilty party that I'm dealing with. It's too hard to make this person guilty. So they're obviously not guilty. So why would I go forward with that? Now, I know that's wishful thinking, but that's really the way it should play out. I know normally, you know, they get a case, they put it in front of them, and they're going to do whatever they can to get that conviction. And I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but I have not seen that. You know, I'm sure there are the ones who do have a case where they know they're dealing with somebody innocent, and they decide not not to prosecute. But unfortunately, I feel that's the rarity. And then, you know, it all ties into accountability. I mean, I'm going to give this statistic, which I found interesting to say the least. And this is all the way back from 2003. A 2003 report by the Center for Public Integrity identified 2012 cases across the United States since 1970 in which a judge reversed a conviction, reduced a sentence, or dismissed charges at least in part because of prosecutorial misconduct. The investigation found that only 44 cases of the misconduct resulted in any kind of disciplinary review of the prosecutor. So from that study back in 2003, there was over 2,000 cases where they did find prosecutorial misconduct, and yet only 44 cases resulted in any kind of disciplinary action, or even review for that matter. So it was basically, well, yes, there was misconduct, but nothing's going to be done about it. So somebody's life was ruined, and there was no price to pay on on the prosecution end. And that doesn't make any sense. I mean, again, it all goes back to common sense and how things should play out. The defense attorneys have to be accountable. They could be held in contempt. They they could have um, bar complaints made. Clients can make bar complaints about them, you know, there is, uh, there's repercussions for their actions. They have to be held to a certain standard. Rightfully so. They're professionals. They're defending somebody's life. And if they don't do it properly, they should be held accountable. But why, why does not, does that not play over on both sides of the fence? Why would the prosecutors or the U.S. attorneys be almost immune to that? And that's a, a serious issue that the public should be aware of. And I think that all goes back to this false facade where the public thinks, you know, when the, when the prosecutors and the U.S. attorneys bring the case in front of them, everything's perfect, um, everything was done the right way, and what they're presenting are all the facts, and there was nothing done that was irregular, nothing that was done where rules were bent, nothing that was done that was unethical. And that's, that's not the case. That's just not the case. And then they go through all the motions... Unfortunately, if they get a wrongful conviction, somebody spends years behind bars, years trying to free themselves based on being innocent, and there's no price to pay on the prosecution. There's no price to pay on that end. 
And the article goes on to talk about how prosecutors are also afforded unique legal protections. They have immunity from civil liability. You can't sue them. And it's almost unheard of for a prosecutor to face criminal penalties for something he or she did in court, like knowingly putting a lying witness on the stand or withholding evidence that points away from a defendant's guilt. How could that happen without any kind of consequences, without any kind of reprimand? If they knowingly put liars on the stand and they're knowingly holding evidence that points away from somebody's guilt, how could that go unchecked? And yet it does. And all of these podcasts kind of lead up to this, you know, underlying theme, how these things do take place and the general public's not aware of it. You know, they have blinders on. They don't know that all this is going on. So when they step into that courtroom, the juries, the jurors, they uh, they feel that everything is on the up and up. Now, in theory, you know, they have to follow the same professional code as other lawyers. And if they don't, you know, it goes to the Bar Association or Ethics p- Panel. But the statistics don't support that. The st- statistics show that when complaints are brought... Nothing really happens. You know, they get off um, free and clear. They, they have no, no um, repercussions, no reprimand, no action is taken when they're wrongfully prosecuting somebody and they're putting people away based on evidence that isn't accurate and based on liars, based on informants who are actually lying. You know, they're powerful because they make big decisions about people's lives, you know, in in the criminal justice system. And and they influence what happens to those people in the community. They should be held more accountable than almost anybody, you know, within the the justice system. I mean, if they're bringing charges and they're going to go forward with a case, you would think that they want to make sure, even for themselves... You know, what does that say about somebody if they knowingly know the evidence is weak and they knowingly know that that an informant they're putting on is a liar and they go through it anyway and they go through the process anyway, what does that say about their character or who they are as a person? Where you don't have the evidence, you don't have the case where you could support what you're claiming and yet you push it through and you bend the rules and you put liars on the stand. What does that say about your uh, moral compass? And really, because of the uh, the Supreme Court, you know, basically granting immunity against civil civil right laws, where it relates to prosecutors and uh, U.S. attorneys, even when they do engage in misconduct, that's why it has such an impact. Where they feel they have free range. They know there's going to be no price to pay. They know that there's going to be nothing that they have to answer for if it becomes if it comes to light that the convictions they obtained were based on false evidence or misleading, false statements, liars of supposed informants. They know there's there's nothing that you know, they're not even going to get a slap on the wrist. They're not even going to face anything. So what do they have to lose? You know, outside of uh, just your own personal const- you know, constitution and what you believe in, there's really nothing to hold them accountable. And if they are of poor character, it really doesn't matter. 
They're, they're fine with that. And I know a lot of them may think the ends justify the means. And I, and I kind of touched on this prior where if they feel somebody maybe have been guilty of something in the past or they lived a certain way in the past and now they're on trial for something totally different where there's no evidence, in their mind, I think they make peace with it by saying, well, he may not be guilty of this or she may not be guilty of this, but they're guilty of something. And again, that's not how the law works. And the general public's just allowing that to happen. You know, they're sitting back, they're letting these trials take place and they're just allowing that to happen and they're convicting people based on the weak evidence, evidence that doesn't add up. They're not analyzing what's in front of them and they're believing that whatever's put in front of them is 100% accurate. They're not looking into it. And if you have a uh, an attorney who isn't doing that great of a job, even though the client's innocent and they're not exposing certain things, because... Technically, the client's supposed to be innocent to proven guilty, as we've harped on, and the uh, government or the prosecutor or the U.S. attorney is supposed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that they're guilty. When you look at it that way, technically, the defense doesn't have to be that great because if the evidence isn't there, it's not there, but that's not the reality. You have to put on such a strong defense to prove your innocence. Because of all these things that take place, because of this misconduct and bending the rules and going forth with witnesses that you know are lying, and it all ties into one another. You know, this is one giant cycle that people aren't recognizing. It's one big cycle. When you add it all up, it's a dangerous opponent. When they have all these tools that they could use and all these tactics that they implement, when they have a target, then they get informants. Then they make the informants lie. You know, then they they have evidence fit that isn't reality. I, I spoke about changing transcripts, putting words in that don't exist, putting people's names in that don't exist, and then using, you know, unintelligible to make it like the transcriber couldn't make the word out, but they know it's the defendant, when in fact it's not. You know, there's a lot of tricks you could use to paint the picture that somebody's guilty when it... When in reality, they're innocent. And I never understood how these things could be manipulated. You know, one would think, well, if they're innocent, they're innocent. It'll it'll come to light at trial. But as we know, that's not how it goes. Because so much is controlled from the judge's end, from the prosecutor's end, from what's allowed in, what's not allowed in. All these tricks that the prosecutor could pull. All of these things influence the truth from being brought to light. And there's no accountability. They could go in, you know, like the Wild West and just do what they want like cowboys. And there's nobody to tell them, stop, you can't do this. This is unethical. This person's obviously innocent. You can't go forward with this. There's a petition on uh, change.org. And you could look it up and even sign it because it's a great um, concept. It's justice, not politics. Hold prosecutors accountable for misconduct and wrongful convictions. And it goes on to say how judges and prosecutors are rarely held accountable for misconduct, even when it is proven that their actions have been responsible for wrongful convictions. As a result, the families and the individuals are harmed by the collective misgivings. There's no legal recourse or punitive remedies available. And it states how it's an unacceptable practice. Officials should be held accountable for their actions. 
The right to fair trial is an American ideal that has been tarnished by judicial dishonesty and neglect. The facts of a case and the truth of the matter should always take precedent over political aims and goals. And that's just not political aims and goals. That's just personal aims and goals. You know, if you get a prosecutor who just doesn't like the defendant, doesn't like the reputation, doesn't like who they believe they are, that's a dangerous combination. They now have a target based on a personal grudge or a uh, belief that this individual may be guilty of something even though the current case does not support it. And they're going to do whatever they can to convict that person. And, you know, this uh, petition goes on to cite a few statistics. And one of them, which is extremely alarming, is based on a study of 100 death sentences overturned by post-conviction evidence. Now, now think about that. Those are 100 people that were convicted and sentenced to death. Out of the first 70 cases that were reversed, over 30 of these involved prosecutorial misconduct. 15 involved false witness testimony. Now how that is... So if this wasn't... If they weren't proven to be innocent after they were convicted, they would have got put to death based on prosecutorial misconduct. So because of a a prosecutor, a U.S. attorney, doing things wrong, unethically breaking the rules, they were going to kill innocent people. That's really the bottom line there. They were going to murder innocent people, but that, but there's no repercussions for that. How aren't they charged with attempted murder? Isn't that what it is? They tried to kill somebody who was innocent. That's attempted murder, isn't it? But no. You know, they just, thank, thank goodness, you know, thank God that the people are let out and they're exonerated, but there's no... Satisfaction, there's no justice on that end. They were almost put to death by a prosecutor or U.S. attorney who was uh, doing things that aren't up to par on what the justice system stands for. And yet there's, there's no price to pay for that. And this petition, what they're trying to accomplish, they want to approve legislation that would allow for a few uh, bullet points, which... I won't go into too much detail, but I, I, I admire the bullet points and they all make sense. The first one's elimination of absolute immunity for prosecutors. That should be a given. Mandatory referral to the American Bar Association. So if there is misconduct, it automatically goes to the Bar Association. Judges, prosecutors must be subject to full transparency regarding histories of misconduct. I think that's more than fair. The public has a right to know of all the misconduct that they've been accused of or have took place regarding their reputation. And I I believe uh, holding them, it also has required open file law in all 50 states. So you could go through, you know, it's all basically transparent. All these things are transparent. There's a a, a bunch of other... um, bullet points that they want to get across, but I wanted to read the most uh, relevant ones to this discussion. And obviously, it's an issue. I mean, a lot of a lot of um, level-minded people and people who have common sense understand how this is a major issue. 
you know, and there's a ton of articles on this. I mean, it goes on to, there's another one I was reading by a Peter Calloway and Jeff Adachi, and it's called One Simple Way to Hold Bad Prosecutors Accountable. State bar organizations have the power to discipline prosecutors, but they studiously ignore bad behavior. And, and that, that sums it up. It's being ignored. And the primary duty of the state bar organization is to govern the conduct of the attorneys and to protect the public. But you're obviously not protecting the public if wrongful convictions are taking place and misconduct is taking place. And the misconduct, it undermines the presumption of innocence, you know, which is like we spoke about. It's a, it's a fundamental principle of the criminal justice system. And it should apply to anybody who's accused of a crime. You know, and it erodes the right to a fair trial, the constitutional right to a fair trial. And, and, and that's a major, major problem. Because of misconduct, it's all part of this giant circle and this giant formula that they put into place to get convictions. There's a few bullet points on this article that I just want to touch on because it actually all rolls into a lot of the things I've discussed on the past episodes. And if you listen to the other episodes, all these things are going to strike a chord with you. Now, the first one says, when people are accused of a crime, they cease to be seen as people by our legal system and become merely criminals. And that's dead on. That whole innocent to proven guilty goes out the window. We spoke about that. And now they're simply criminals. As soon as they're charged. As soon as they're accused. And then we spoke about this with the, uh, how does misconduct help drive these numbers? Mostly through plea bargaining. A coercive process that results in around 97% of criminal cases being resolved without a trial. And it actually goes on to talk about one of the topics I was uh, speaking about where people plea even though they're innocent. And it gives a little synopsis here. Imagine you're charged with a robbery you didn't commit. The prosecutor's case is based solely on an eyewitness who says you match the description of the subject. You're confused and scared. You've heard the stories of innocent people going to prison. The prosecutor doesn't tell you, but the witness has a history of lying under oath. If you knew about the witness's past, you could use that information to show the jury that the witness shouldn't be trusted. There would be no other evidence against you, and you would most likely be acquitted or the case would be dismissed. But you don't know about it. All you know is that you go to trial, the prosecutor will put a witness on the stand who will tell the truth that you definitely committed the robbery. You also know that if you're found guilty, you could face up to nine years in prison. And now they offer you a deal. What are you going to do? And it all goes back to different elements and different topics and different episodes where this is one big cycle. And all these things are strategically put into place. This does not happen by accident. You know, these are all intelligent people, intelligent departments with endless money, endless resources, and endless power. They're able to strategize and play chess with people's lives. And, you know, it's funny. when I, It just reminded me when I used that term playing chess. <laughs> On this last case, there was uh, an agent on the stand and... Um, one of the conversations he had actually with one of the informants that they were using who was lying and he was wearing a wire trying to entrap people 
and set people up as the agent told him it's like pe- playing chess so so imagine that they're discussing setting people up and they're equating it to playing chess people's lives aren't a game it's not playing chess if the evidence is there it'll come out if you're forcing it and you're setting somebody up that's not evidence that's setting somebody up and Part of the whole setup, it all goes hand in hand is, you know, when you have evidence that you want to try to make fit the case, you leave certain details out on purpose, you bring in informants that are lying, they're not telling the truth, you just tell the informant you're looking to target somebody, and then you focus on getting that person. That all goes into really misconduct. I mean, maybe some see it as a gray area, I really don't. If if you're faced with something and there's a clear choice of right and wrong, and you're you're choosing this <clears throat> mysterious gray area to suit your case and to and to fight for your case. I don't think that's being honorable. It's not. It's being misleading. When somebody's life is on the line, it should be black and white, and it should be they're either guilty or they're innocent. And if you feel they're guilty and you have the evidence to back it up, take them to trial and present it. Don't manipulate anything. Don't force an informant's hand. And make deals with these individuals who are of a very low character just to save themselves where they're lying. You know, it goes back to the episodes on informants. It doesn't matter my personal belief on an informant. You know, I have my own philosophy on that and I made that clear. But if you're going to be an informant and that's what you choose to do is to give up other people for your own uh, salvation. You should tell the truth. When you lie, that's where the problem is. You're actually lying. You're creating something just to save your skin. That's worse than being, you know, uh, that's worse than being an informant because now you're lying. You're just being a liar. You're just setting somebody up to save yourself, somebody you don't even know. And the prosecutor to know that and to still use this person on their case, it says a lot about them. It says a lot about their character. There's an article um, by Dale Chapel. It's called Government Snitches Incentivized Witnesses Are the Leading Cause of Wrongful Convictions. And this goes on to discuss how um, informants are used and the government's use of informants became a formal part of law enforcement during the Prohibition era in the 20s where um, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms switched to using entrapment and informants to catch gun and alcohol smugglers, making snitching an integral part of the criminal justice system. And then it goes on to explain how it exploded in the 70s when Nixon declared war on drugs, and the government used the same techniques of entrapment and informants to bust suspected drug offenders. And the article goes on to say a problem is that the informants offer information that law enforcement cannot verify as true. When an informant testifies for the government before a jury, the, the specific details are usually known only to the informant, which gives the appearance that the informant has inside information. This bolsters the informant's credibility with the jury, and proving that the informant's information is false is nearly an impossible feat for a defendant. And, you know, that that's it in a nutshell. Because if you have somebody lying, the damage is already done. The prosecutor's putting them on as if they're this upstanding person, uh, this person who now wants to make amends 
and change their life around and, and do things the right way. So now they're telling all they know. But if you have a liar or a known liar, there is no way of the jury knowing that. And that should come beforehand if you have an honest prosecutor. They should not put somebody on the stand that they know lied, that they caught in lies. And they catch them in a lot of lies. When they do those debriefings, they have the um, proffer sessions, which is where the informant goes in and talks with the um, prosecutors and the U.S. attorney. They have many, many proffer sessions. And if you read all the notes, just the layman could read through all the notes and see the inconsistencies. And they could see that the individuals are lying. So you know for a fact that the ones performing the interview know they're lying, and yet they still push through. They still call these uh, informants. They still call them to testify. And the article goes on to say how government witnesses lying on the stand is nothing new, but is how and why they lie that's changed. And it talks about how snitches contribute to wrongful convictions. Prosecutors are heavily invested in the informant's story to make their case, and thus have no real incentive to check a lying informant. This marriage of convenience created by the interests of the prosecutor and informant benefits both parties, with an innocent person sometimes going to prison or the death chamber. So because, you know, this works for the prosecutor and works for the witness, they're going to they're gonna go ahead with it, Regardless of the fact that somebody's life is on the line, either where they could be possibly put to death, or spend time in jail, or spend the rest of their life in jail. And, you know, they have these incentivized witnesses where one way or another there's an exchange for an expected benefit. And it talks about the benefit and favorable treatment in the person's own criminal case, money, Goods for consideration. Some way they get they get rewarded. So they're being rewarded for that. And they have all... This article is really detailed on informants. And I'll probably tie this in on another episode where I'm going to... I want to discuss the actual informants on the last case. The last case I was involved was a uh, RICO case. And I want to break down... Uh, the actual informants. You know, I want to go over who they are and I want to go over um, what's out on them, even, you know, through public information, through newspaper articles, through YouTube videos, through past um, actions. I want to show the caliber that they used and yet they obtained a conviction where these people were known liars, known perjurers, known degenerates, committed heinous acts, and they still went forward with using them. They were, they were caught in many lies, especially in the uh, proffer sessions in the 3500s, and even on the stand, they were tripped up on several lies, and they still went forward with, with using them. And, you know, this article talks about the different types of witnesses, the jailhouse snitch, the professional snitch, which basically makes a living out of putting people behind bars by selling information to law enforcement. An accomplice informant is the co-defendant of the person the informant is offering information against in an effort to get his or own charges dropped. So there's always an agenda. There's always an agenda. And, you know, it boils down to they they tell the individuals, the uh, informants, 
that they want to get somebody, target somebody. And they'll go, you know, meet with the informant and ask them what could they give them on somebody. Now, if you look at it from the informant's perspective, you're dealing with somebody with no conscience. You're dealing with somebody with no character, no conscience. So now they're having put in front of them, we have a high-profile target and we want you to, to help us convict them. You know as well as I do, ladies and gentlemen, that person is going to do whatever they can to come up with something to make sure that they could get a conviction for the government, to help the government out so that they will be in good favor with the government. They're going to lie. They're going to create stories. They're going to do whatever they can. They're going to go along with whatever breadcrumbs are being put down for the trail that the government's setting up. They're going to go along with it. They're going to follow that trail. They're going to eat those breadcrumbs. They're going to go wherever. It's going to lead wherever they want to go. Common sense tells us that. The law may say something different of how it's supposed to be, but that's not what takes place. And that's what everybody has to start getting through their head, that what what is read to them in the court and what's read to them in the, or what they read themselves in the legal books and the legal analysis, that's not what what takes place. There's a whole process that takes place when you're looking to put somebody on trial, you're looking to convict somebody. And there's all pieces of the puzzle that have to be filled in. And they control the government or, or the party that is doing bringing the charges, control a lot of that element. And the defense is up against a monstrous opponent from inception. They're up against a, a, a very dangerous weapon. And when you factor in all of these other uh aspects of it where things can be done in a way that is not just and where systems are being broken and where liars are being used, false evidence is being used, evidence that could help is not being released. And I'm going to give an example of how crazy it gets. When you when you go to trial they have what's called the 3500, which is the information that's going to pretty much help you in trial. It's all of um, the facts and all of the proffer sessions that were done by the um, by the informants. You get that like a week, two weeks, three weeks before trial. So now if you got 15 informants, you have to go through thousands of pages of documents only a few weeks before trial to prepare for these witnesses. So now if you want to get an investigator to to try to look into some of the statements made during the proffer session, you have three weeks or so to do it. Logistically, how is that allowed? The government has this information. On this last case, it was two and a half years before trial. They've had all this information. And then they have what's called rolling discovery, which basically means they could just give it to you as, as they want to. So you got two and a half years of a case. They'll just give you the information in drips and drabs. So you're trying to you're trying to build your case and you don't even have the evidence against you. You have to wait for it. Then you'll get it, you know, a month out, two months out, three months out of trial. And you're trying to prepare. And if it has a lot of tapes, you have to go through all these tapes. This last last case had, a, I believe it was over 80,000 audio clips. Now you got to go through all those. I know a lot, you know, unfortunately a lot of it gets missed. But, you know, that's where my firm comes in. We try to go through, 
we nail everything down. I mean, we go through these tapes. You got to listen to it because there's a lot there that could help your case. If you have a fair trial, there's a lot there that could help your case. If you have a trial where they're just not going playing by the rules, that's different. You know, then you, you could have the dream team defending you and it's not going to help your case because the deck is so stacked against you and you're going to get a conviction. They're going to get a conviction based on lies, based on direction of the court, based on judges' actions, based on what's allowed in, what's not allowed in. You know, that element is scary because you can't account for that. But you have to prepare for the case regardless, even if that's what you're up against. You got you to gotta extrapolate everything and dissect everything. And when you think about that, they're giving you discovery on a rolling basis where you have to wait to analyze the evidence against you. One would figure the second you're indicted, you're given that information. You want to know on a federal level, I'm talking about. You want to know uh, what you're up against. But you have to wait for it, and then when you get it, then analyze it, then go through it, then try to have transcripts done. And it all ties into each other. If, you know, the prosecutor's trying to say that a transcript is saying you committed a robbery, then you go through those thousands of tapes and you find the tape they're talking about because they're not going to tell you where the tape is, mind you. They're going to dump it all in a hard drive and you got to find it. So now you finally find that tape and you go through it and that's not what it says at all. Now you have to show that's not what it says. You have to get it transcribed and you have to fight that. You have to fight a made-up accusation about the defendant. You have to fight that. Imagine that. It shouldn't be allowed, but it is. That's the reality of it. And you get people who say they can't do that. Throw that whole statement out the window. They could do whatever they want to do. And they have that term, uh, harmless error. They could do whatever they want, chalk it up to harmless error. It's not harmless error. It's strategic. It's deliberate. And it's done to stack the deck. It's done a lot of times to force a plea. It's done a lot of times to overwhelm the defense. When they're, I mean, you know, think about that. You're getting hit with thousands and thousands of files, hundreds of thousands. A RICO case is huge. You get hit with hundreds of thousands of files. You got to have the expertise to go through that. You know, that's where we come in, where my firm comes in. We go through it. We make sure nothing's missed because we know what's on the line. For myself, being personally vested, I make sure any defendant gets what they need because it's their life and I can relate to it and I can relate to the impact that it has. And it's very disheartening when you see these things taking place and you feel we live in you know a country where you have a right to a fair trial and that's not the reality of it. And it's a sad day when you realize that and you come to terms with that and you accept that's, that's the world we live in and it's an uphill battle for anybody going through it. And that's just the facts. And there's nothing to hold anybody accountable. And if you notice, I think this is um, episode 13. All of my episodes tie into each other. You know, and, and my goal is I'm just hoping those listening grasp what goes on and what takes place. This way, if and when the day ever comes where they are on a, a trial, they're serving as a juror. They remember all these different elements and all these different facts. And they don't judge the person that's sitting in, in front of them based on what they believe. They judge based on the facts. And they evaluate these, the prosecutors, and they evaluate the informants one-on-one and individually. 
and they evaluate the facts and they take into account what could have not been allowed in, what was allowed in, and they listen to the audio. They don't just take the transcripts from the other side and assume they're accurate. Listen to the audio. Try to hear it for yourself. You know, and that's all you want. You want educated jurors. You want jurors who are not falling for the smoke and mirrors. And today's episode should really drive home the fact that if a prosecutor or, you know, a U.S. attorney is not held accountable for any of their actions, if there is a lot of misconduct taking place, that should be in back of your head. You should realize, you know, somebody who's not held accountable is a dangerous person. And if you don't have an internal moral compass to do the right thing, that's a dangerous person. And the world we live in, a lot of that exists. And you, you, one would hope that if a prosecutor is faced with a case that doesn't have the supporting evidence backing up the accusations that are being made, they wouldn't go forward with the case. But that's not what happens. Statistics alone show that's not what happen, happens. The last case I was on showed that that's not what happened. They were pushing informants who didn't even know the defendant. Pushing informants, specifically, uh, on on this last case, I believe 10 or 11 out of the 13 or 14 informants never even met one of the defendants. Never even knew him. My father, specifically. Never met him, never knew him. It was all far removed hearsay. And yet they still put them on to tell a story. And that's all it is. It's telling a story. Because if you don't know somebody, they never spoke to you. They never interacted with you. All you could do is tell a story. And when you think about it, we could all do that. We could all tell stories about people we don't know, we never met. And now you're going to use that as evidence? And it boils down to accountability. A prosecutor will use that because they know if they don't get the... Let's go best case scenario. Which unfortunately didn't happen. But let's go best case scenario. An innocent man is found innocent. When you look at the facts, you spent two and a half years behind bars because you were denied bail. You went for all kinds of money financially with lawyers and attorneys and all different kinds of fees to fight your case between hard drives, between databases, between um, uh, transcripts, all kinds of money. And now you're found innocent. And that's it, you're out, which is phenomenal. I wish that was the result we had. Don't get get me wrong. I would I prayed for that result. But even with that, look at how much the person would have suffered. Lost two and a half years of their life, all kinds of money. They were innocent of all the charges and they had to go through that. They had to endure that. And they call that justice. And then there's no price to pay. There's no accountability. And that's a major problem. Another major problem in this this vicious cycle. And it's all one big vicious cycle. And until the public starts realizing that, nothing's going to change. And the power with this is with the people. People need to educate themselves and understand. And again, for those who are against what I'm saying, don't try to use the excuse that I'm, I'm making it a big conspiracy. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, all I want is fair an equal process for all involved. And I'm sure that happens sometimes. I'm sure, you know, it does take place, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's not the purpose of my podcast. I'm focusing on when it doesn't happen and how it should never happen. 
because all of these themes should play out the way they're written in the law books, and they don't. And when they don't, that's a problem, and that's what I'm going to discuss, and that's what I'm going to bring light to. For the upcoming episodes, just to give a snapshot, uh, I'm going to, I'm putting together. Um, I'm going to dive into uh, the particular witnesses, informants on the last case. I'm going to dive into some of their characters, uh, some of their traits, some of the things they've done. So you get a little insight on their on their um, what they're all about. I'm also going to have uh, a couple guests on. I mentioned I'm going to have an attorney on. I'm going to have a uh, a cell site forensic expert on. So we're going to be doing a few things that I think are going to continue to enlighten the public. I'm also going to have some um, listener experiences where they're going to email me what they want read. I'm going to read just some um, personal emails where they faced an unjust, unjust act or injustice that they were up against. All those things I think will enlighten and continue with our theme. And as it goes on and progresses, the format may change. You know, it may just start to go into more of a personal one-on-one thing where I'm just talking about things on a personal level that I can relate to, how I would handle it. And as I said from day one, this is organic, so there's no such structure here. It's going to really be what I think the people want to hear about, what they want to listen to. So any suggestions I'm open for, just feel free to drop an email, info at justicetechpros.com. Just put podcast in the subject, and uh, my staff will send it to me. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you like the content. And that's it for now. We'll talk to you next time.